This is Jonathan Martin. I'm welcoming you back to another episode of the Zeitcast. It's been a minute. A lot of things happening in the world, in ourselves, as it always is. So much I've been eager to share with you. But today, before I do anything else, and certainly a lot circulating right now about the book that's coming out June 7th, The Road Away From God. I want to share more about that. Deeply grateful for patrons, all of you who support this podcast for your patience. Good grief. Y'all are wonderful. But I really felt like I needed to share this little talk I gave on Instagram Live a couple weeks ago for the table. On that particular Sunday, it was based on the lectionary text. I'm going to have that reading for you here, trying to edit down just a bit for time. I had some technology issues that week, but John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Famous story about Thomas, the disciple who gets labeled as a doubter. Though in reality, as it is with anybody else who doubts, I think he's so much more. It felt like maybe it was going to be a uh, somehow just a timely word, timely message for some of you. And for whatever it's worth, it's where I am right now. For those who are struggling in the process of trying to believe, or in some cases trying not to believe, here's where I am. I hope it gives you a sense of where I deeply believe that God is, giving you permission giving you space to be where you are. I hope you feel that through this talk is a sense of permission to be where you are, to feel seen, to feel known. Because good grief, that's always my, just my heartbeat these days. Is that you don't need to feel alone. That you can feel seen, you can feel known, and gathered wherever you are. So, offering this little talk to you in hopes it lands where it needs to land. A sermon, if you will, preached on Eastern Orthodox Easter, which is also Easter. Thank, thank you guys for hanging around. Hope you know I love you very much. A handful of things that have always been, um, that have always, that have spoken to me for a number of years, I think for any of us, and yeah, sometimes I hate even making that disclaimer. I suppose there's some people who don't deal with doubt on some level or another. Uh, I don't really understand that. I think most people, at least at some point in their life, are going to, uh, are going to deal with doubt. Of course, now I feel like it's at a very different stage. I remember there was a time in my life when I would talk about doubt and kind of giving people permission to doubt from texts like these and it seemed like it was something revolutionary for people to hear whereas now uh, so many people that uh, know and love and walk with such a place of deep disillusionment from and are abandoning faith altogether it's a very different moment from uh from from that to be sure but i mean there are a lot of different angles on the text i know for years when i've gone here what i have been inclined to talk about is jesus 
Jesus's tenderness to Thomas in his doubt, uh, the fact that there's not anger here. Um, I think there is certainly a sermon to be preached in the way that, you know, Thomas is the one who, unlike any other disciple um, that we read about at least, so desperately needs this kind of visceral embodied experience of touching Jesus in this way. And instead of being rebuked or chastised for this, Jesus welcomes that. Okay, if you need to touch me, you can touch me. And, um, you know, so there's a lot that we could say about that. But today, this is, um, this, this is hitting me different. It has been for a couple of days. I've just, because as much as I think all those things are still true, and I love the tenderness of Jesus to Thomas. And I do think this, there's a, it's always a beautiful text in terms of there being room to doubt and to be wherever we are. All those things are true. But I'm thinking so much about the uniqueness of this encounter and that while Jesus, because Thomas needs it, and I do think the God that's revealed to us in Jesus is one who speaks to us and deals with us on a very individual level and will give us what we need and meets us in that way. That's beautiful. But Jesus is clearly reluctant here. And it's not like a show and tell where Jesus says, okay, like, you know, it's kind of like, pass it, like we're going to pass the body of Jesus around. Anybody who wants to touch and handle and feel can do this now. This is clearly not the method that Jesus chooses in general to convince people of the resurrection. And Jesus even goes out of his way to say, hey, great that in the midst that having this experience of being able to touch my wounds in this way that you believe, but it's really blessed to not see, to not feel, to not have this experience and to believe. So in other words, I mean, I think even the fact that in the gospels, it's a really limited number of people that Jesus appears to at all, right? Post-resurrection. It's really not and uh, a large amount of people by any means. So it makes me think of how in Mark's gospel in particular, how often Jesus will perform a miracle and then will tell the people um, who are healed, don't tell anybody this has happened or don't tell anybody who I am. This whole idea of the messianic secrets. The fact that Jesus, even in resurrected form, is so spare, is so sparse in giving people this kind of opportunity to handle him in this way. When it would seem that if other people had the opportunity to see Jesus with these wounds, to be able to handle the, these wounds, then they would have no choice but to not believe. They would have no choice. They would be overwhelmed by the power of such a moment. They would be overwhelmed by the experience. They would literally have no choice but to believe. And I'm thinking about that today because I feel like a lot, of, a lot of us are at places where we're wrestling with this kind of reality. When you are in a process of sorting and sifting, what do I believe? What do I carry with me? I think sometimes in the midst of that, we're, we're looking for, we're hoping for some kind of an overwhelming experience that will be so like the sheer force of it, you know, what we would then decide that we think about God, how we decide to walk with God or whatever, it would just be undeniable. But what I feel like we see consistently in the pattern of the gospels 
is that Jesus very rarely overwhelms people in this way. God doesn't. And I'm saying this as a person who believes in the magic. I believe in the miracles, right? But God rarely shows up in such a way to where people actually don't have a choice as to whether or not they believe. It's not how God chooses to do it. All right, Thomas, I love you. And because of God's very tailored personal love for Thomas, yes, I will grant you this experience. But just so y'all know, it's a whole lot better to, to not handle in this way, to not know in this way, to not see in this way, and yet believe. And that's normally the way that God does it. Um, I don't know if this is going to seem silly to you or not, but I'm thinking about all the ways that not only I have looked for that kind of experience where I would have the overwhelming, overpowering, I absolutely have no choice but to believe, uh, you know, some kind of experience that just settles it. Now there will be no, it won't be a choice anymore because I'm just sort of overpowered in this way but also the ways that I want other people to have an overpowering experience or I have historically, you know, one, you know, you want people like, Oh, if we can just like almost by brute force, like convince them that Jesus is the right way. There were some clips that went viral this weekend. I don't know if you'd find this sacrilegious or not. I don't know if I've ever laughed this hard at just about anything of <laughs> An Easter musical at a church. And there's a part of me that feels a little bit bad about this in a sense, because I, I can imagine, I can picture the people participating in this Easter play, and they're very excited to be part of a big production that feels very clever, and they're inviting their friends and family, but there's a part of me that still thinks, oh, well, that's, that's sweet. But there are these clips circulating online of a church, and it's like they're doing their Easter musical, and they do it as an, as an Avengers musical. And so it's the whole, like, seize the moment of pop culture, and so, you know, the Iron Man is the Jesus character. It's very poorly acted. <laughs> and the, the, the production is kind of so-so. And it's like Iron Man's on the cross. And Loki is maniacally laughing as he stabs him with the spear. And um, the person, <laughs> Jordan, you've seen this? <laughs> Did you think this is funny? It's like, I, 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 it's, it was, I just couldn't stop watching it. I, I laughed for 30 minutes about this. And then I saw the, the person who I think was first circling this at least, posted a series of these of like church cantata pop culture crucifixion scenes because there's then one from an Easter music musical where Jesus is a pirate, which I looked up all I could about this. And by the way, it's actually called <laughs> Pirates of the Galilean. <laughs> that was the name of the Easter musical. Pirates of the Galilean. <laughs> and so you have long hair, big beard like, like Jesus on the cross. <laughs> Somebody had a brilliant tweet about this. I wish I could remember verbatim, but it was something like, hey kids, you know who else, you like Jack Sparrow? You know who else was a long haired uh, hippie uh, with a dangerously high blood alcohol level? <laughs> it's so so great. Anyway, so it's like pirate Jesus, and you see him on the cross, and the pirates turn on him, and then they're chanting, you know, string him up, string him up, string him up. <laughs> it's just so bad. And then apparently the same church also did a Back to the Future Easter musical, ooh, in which 
<laughs> the Michael J. Fox character, right, is like, <laughs> his name is Jesse, you know, because like Jesse, like JC, and there's this whole thing where like the climactic, like he's up against the clock, and then that turns into a cross. It's like, it's like a series of these pop culture Christian scenes. Oh, and it's like, I don't want to, <laughs> Jeff Hodgins said, I like to think of Jesus like a ninja. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> And I'm watching these, and it's like, I, there's still that, that boy side of me that feels a little bad to laugh. And also, I laughed for an hour. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And, and then I thought, okay, so really, at the end of the day, beyond the fact, I mean, it's cringy for so many reasons. But, what, but, like, what's really happening here? And what I'm imagining, because I get it, right? I can see people in the, the little conference room at the church. Like, All right, guys. Now, love, this year, I got a great idea. Avengers is huge. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to play where Iron Man is actually Jesus. And it's like, <laughs> everybody gets excited. Feels like it's clever, like whatever. But you can just feel the sense of like, okay, we want to engineer this overpowering, overwhelming experience, this assault on the senses that's going to, uh, oh, like you're gonna make people believe in Jesus. Like if we're able to use the Avengers and we're able to throw some money at this thing and do whatever, like oh. it's just like I can just feel the energy behind that of like, oh, maybe this is gonna be the thing if we spend enough money and we and we do this up right, people are gonna have to believe. And you know, and hey, don't get me wrong. I mean, sometimes I'm just maybe it, it's 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 happened that way for people, but it it generally does not. And my sense of this is, uh, I am trying actually to go somewhere constructive. It's not normally how it works at all. I mean, I, I know a lot of people whose experience of coming to faith has been supernatural in some way, and I deeply buy into those stories. I'm ramping back up with the Zeitgeist again, really am. But, you know, there was a time when I was putting out like a thousand episodes at a time. And that was fun, but I also feel like nobody ever listened to a lot of the best episodes. So I'm bending my bitterness. Nobody ever heard the best episodes. Not really bitter about it. But I'll tell you one of the very best that it seemed like nobody heard. I brought on Sarah Miles. Sarah Miles wrote a book that I utterly adored. It's an exquisite, beautifully written book called Take This Bread. She was a journalist, and she had this experience of wandering into an Episcopal church in San Francisco, where kind of randomly she ends up taking the, uh, like, receiving the Eucharist, and has this really miraculous experience, and it's so beautiful. And when I think about a story like that, or when I think about uh, Anne Lamott's magnificent story of, of her, conver her grand conversion in Traveling Mercies, where she talks about feeling like Jesus trailed her like a like a house cat and finally she gets to a moment in her very earthy way you know like uh, she gets to her houseboat and she says f it all right you can come in and she feels like it's like jesus enters the house with her i mean it's beautifully done i, I just i really believe in those kind of moments but part of what's so interesting about those these things for me i feel like normally they kind of sneak up on people you don't get to you don't engineer them um, there's not a way that you can, uh, you don't just get to decide anybody who's ever had experience. I know I make fun of these things sometimes. And this, it, I mean, it is a thing I make fun of. Uh, I make fun of a lot of apologetics, uh, this idea of defending the faith, because a lot of times it turns into, you know, this very ridiculous idea 
that somehow there are these intellectual maneuvers that are guaranteed to back somebody into a corner to believe. Josh McDowell wrote a book years ago, um, sure, well-intended, but called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. See, I don't think there is evidence that demands a verdict. I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And I have compelling reasons for that. But I don't feel like I've been demanded. Nobody put a gun to my head. You know, I don't, I don't think it's as simple as like, you know, this sort of, you know, 12 people with the threat of death still said they believed. Therefore, resurrection must be true. Therefore, you have to be a Christian. If not, it's, it doesn't really work that way. And they give you a script. When I was tw uh, in my 20s, I worked at a church where they brought in this guy who did 10 ways to prove the Bible without using a scripture which is just an absurd idea. I was even at the time, I was like, why exactly would I want to prove the Bible is true without using the scripture? I didn't even understand the premise uh, at the time, but it was all like that way, you know, these sort of like, and it's this whole, you know, like obviously your heathen godless um, atheist neighbor, uh, you ask them, uh, what do you believe about truth? And they of course are going to say, well, I don't believe in such a thing as uh, as truth or propositional truth. I believe that all uh, I believe that truth is relative, and then you like intellectually bully them and back them into a corner, and then like, oh yeah, well if you if you believe that all truth is relative, and you know, next thing you know, then they're on their knees repenting. It's never happened. It's never happened. It's never worked. No, it's literally never happened for anybody. No one has been argued nobody's ever been coerced nobody has been forced into following jesus it's never worked for anyone ever i know i can be prone to overgeneralization sometimes these days i try to just give my chick track don said <laughs> chicks were really the ultimate example of this you talk about trying to absolutely seize people's emotions and throw them down to the floor and make them believe chick tracks uh certainly did this for anybody who remembers those but the idea is like to coerce people into belief, uh, into belief. And I think a lot of us really, uh, not only have we, you know, we can laugh at that now because a lot of us are like, well, yeah, that was, that was dumb. I wouldn't do that now. But on some level, we really want to be coerced ourselves. We want to be overcome. We want the waves to overtake us. I'm not going to say I've never had experiences like that in my life, but I will tell you this, even my most powerful mystical experiences of God. And I have had a few. I've written about them. I've talked about them. I wouldn't tell them if I didn't believe my bones, they were true. Can I tell you that I've never had an experience like that, that it, there never comes a time or moment where uh, sometime later it gets a little hazy. Wait a second. Am I remembering that right? Is it, well, did it really happen that way? Could just this or that have been in, in my head or like whatever. I have never had an experience that was so forceful or so overpowering that on some level, there still wasn't a decision to believe. It's always a decision. And I think that's because long before this was any kind of a buzzword, God always valued consent. I think that's why you have the messianic secret thing happening in the book of Mark. I love what Julie said. We approach conversation with that kind of agenda. Authentic relationship is almost impossible. Yes, yes, yes. But I think this is why Jesus, you know, Healing and the miracles are part of the agenda because ultimately for Jesus to bring God's shalom into the world, of course, everybody's going to have a foretaste of what we believe is coming, that kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, yeah, of course, healing is going to be part of that mission. 
but there's, I feel like we see this caution over and over again in Jesus. Thomas needs to handle him. So because he loves Thomas, yes, there's permission. But Jesus is not, is clearly reluctant and he's not proactively soliciting like, hey, everybody come touch me. Hey, everybody, like he's not, he's not starting a carnival where people can buy tickets and turn this into a whole thing. It's just, it's, it was never the method. And I think the idea we get consistently is this, you know, God always values consent. There always has to be a choice whether or not to believe. And I, I want to say this in a way that I hope will be comforting in some way, because I think a lot of people right now are, you know, especially if you're struggling with what you believe, how you believe, how to sift and sort these things. I, I want to just give yourself permission to let yourself off the hook, God off the hook, whatever, to not necessarily have to have some kind of an overwhelming experience. You know, it just may not happen that way. I don't think she'd mind me sharing this. I was talking to a dear friend the other day who was processing like questions of belief and um, kind of raising the question of a little bit afraid because scripture was really life giving for her at some point and now a little bit nervous about wading back into it. And the idea was partly, I used to kind of feel these electric things when I was reading scripture and now I'm afraid. What if I read and I don't feel the things? What if I don't believe? And my response was largely, what if you don't? <laughs> and of course, clarify not to, not to make light of how, what a heavy thing it is if you to lose faith or not know where things are going to land. But the point was to say that you, you really don't have to ever be afraid of your own conclusions. You really don't ever have to be afraid of following the questions wherever they lead you. I don't think that's what God wants for anybody. I, I think there's always permission. There's always room to authentically, really, with all of yourself, with all of your energy, to ask all the questions you need to ask, explore what you need to explore, without this sense of having to fear where you might land. And at the end of the day, you know, I, the, the truth is, I think no matter, for even the most devout people, in fact, ironically, I've found that often the most devout people, um, and, it, and there's a mystery to how God works in this way, because even for some of those people, like some the stories I reference, will have these really mystical, beautiful experiences of God that awaken them and bring them to faith. Really interesting how people will have those up front and then go for long stretches and not have them at all. Sometimes I feel like that it's, it's, it seems as if the people that I would identify understand the way I'm saying this word is not about moralistic piety here, but the people I would identify as being the most holy, that seems to be the most true for them. Long stretches of not having any conscious sense of God's presence or miracles or what have you, complete drought, wordlessness, like whatever. Um, even, and maybe especially for the saints, if I can use that phrase, uh, in the broad sense, even, and especially for the saints, there is not this experience of God that's so overwhelming and so constant and so nonstop. A lot of us were not told that. I know Paul, uh, in the New Testament says to pray without ceasing. I actually love that idea. I think praying without ceasing is, is a big idea. I think to pray without ceasing is to is a way of living in constant connectivity. There was a guy I went to Bible camp with who 
you'd hear him like praying in tongues on the roller coaster. <laughs> I don't think, I, not that not, there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that the idea is that you need to literally do that. I think constant connectivity in some way, and that's great uh, to live awake. I mean, it's great. Wake to God and others, et cetera. But I, I just don't, I think a lot of us were promised some idea that if we're more devout, if we, read more, pray more, whatever, then we're constantly, the, then more miracles, then God's have become more real. And there's this linear path of like, what are, realistically, that's often just not how it works. The spiritual life waxes and wanes and uh, feelings really do come and go. And sometimes the way that you see something, uh, it can seem like kind of undeniable in one moment and not in the next. And the fact is, I think God, and specifically, as a Christian, I would say that God revealed in Christ generally refuses to overwhelm our senses in a way that forces our hand where you would have absolutely no alternative but to believe. No, I think it's, I think at the end of the day, you're still usually left with a choice. I, I really can't tell even as I'm saying that. I don't know how that's being received. I don't know how that feels to you because I could understand where that might not sound like really good news, because to some extent or another, who does it want undeniable evidence? Who does it want to be, you know, the same way I think a lot of us on a pretty deep level really want to be told what to do. Um, it's, you know, why we often elect, it's why we want kings. It's why we often really like authoritarians, don't we? We kind of want somebody to tell us what to do. Um, but I think in the spiritual life, this is just not, how God works. Of course, it's always going to be a choice. Of course, it's always a choice. And I say this with freedom, that as someone who deeply believes, I mean, and, I, and I'm a believer to my toes, for better or for worse. Um, you know, I, I believe all the things, all the, all the things we're starting in, in the creed. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the incarnation. I believe in his uh, life. I believe in his death. I believe in the nonviolent way of Jesus. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe in all the things. And as someone who really believes, I can tell you from a very authentic place, I'm also very aware that some of that, part of that is, is, is me choosing to believe. And I don't think that makes faith any weaker, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what makes faith faith is that, there's a choice in there to believe. If you know it, maybe that sounds, does that sound too basic right now? If you know it, then it's not belief. If you know it, then it's not faith. If you know with complete certainty, um, thank you. I, I love this cat. God is so opposed to, uh, to control that he will not force his will on anyone. I really do believe that. To, I just think this is why, by the way, I, I'm almost done. I promise. Uh, this is why, I feel like religion in general is often so dangerous is that we really do crave certainty. And I know that's a big we, but y'all know what I mean. Generally speaking, we actually do crave certainty. Most of us want certainty and I get it. It's why I'm never really surprised anymore that people believe atrocious things or believe in atrocious people. Well, of course, because people offer them certainty and I'm not saying people are manipulating folks on purpose, but I do think to an extent people do intuit people's need for certainty and they play on that. 
they give people what they want. And certainty, by the way, certainty, generally speaking, for and I, I think especially for a lot of us who come from certain kind of church cultures, certainty is what God sounds like, right? I mean, how, do, how will we know the voice of God? Well, we know because it's a voice that is utterly authoritarian, that is utterly certain. There's no ambiguity whatsoever. We know the voice of God because it is stern and static and fixed. And whew. now the reality is, and this is one of the reasons why I'm a person who still really loves the Bible for all the things that you know people can find problematic and all the things. I think when you look at scripture on the whole, it is a book that's just chock full of ambiguity. I mean, the idea, it's not that there's so much, people believe the report that there's all this certainty in the Bible. It's just not true. It's not a book that's full of certainty. It's a book that's full of tension. And the way that wisdom comes out of scripture and the way that sacred texts work is that the truth is always in the tension. And if you're not engaged in the tension, then you really don't get anything out of it. The idea that the whole idea of the Bible is an answer book. Oh my goodness. Well, well no, it has never been turned to page 83 and you'll find this answer to this question because you'll read one thing on page 83 and you'll win. You'll read something else on page 246 that will seem to be utterly contradictory. And that for me is not a reason, something that like um, discredits scripture and makes it untrue or something. I just think people generally don't know how sacred texts work and more broadly don't understand how literature works, <laughs> that it's precisely in that wrestling in the back and forth. And it's the context of a community that wrestles with these things. That's how you, that's how you come to some kind of a faithful interpretation, I believe. But I, I, that's a whole rabbit trail I didn't mean to go down. The point is that this whole idea that the Bible often certainty is just ridiculous. If you don't believe me or you think this is a riff from whatever, let me give you a little thought experiment. How about you sit down today and you read the book of Proverbs and then you read the book of Job right after it. And you tell me how this is a book full of clear-cut answers where everything fits neatly together. I'm not even talking, just put those two books together and see how that goes. It is chock full of ambiguity in every possible way. And I feel like actually what scripture does more often than not is not give us certainty, but destabilize us. Because the truth is most of us don't need more certainty we need less certainty. We're generally too certain about the wrong things. So what scripture does actually is destabilize us in a way that makes trust necessary. Is anybody tracking what I'm saying? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lizzie. That's such a good word. Um, you, scripture destabilizes us in a way that makes trust necessary. It does not give us more certainty. We're generally too certain about the wrong things. And we need scripture uh, to kind of undo that. That's, that's more how that functions in my life. Not to give me more certainty, but to give me less. Uh, I start cruising with all these assumptions. My assumptions are normally not right. So I need something to kind of undo that. Uh, thank you all for preaching with me right now. This is so good. April, that's wonderful. Nicole just said, even deconstruction can be a need for certainty. Ooh, 
Uh, well, I'm loving that word <laughs> because I think that's true. I think sometimes people go through like kind of an unraveling, you know, a deconstruction question mark, and it's and it lands in just a different kind of certainty. And this is my this is a thing I talk about a lot right now. Just a private conversation with friends. I'm always, and I mean this not uh, an ugly critical kind of way, but I'm just always suspicious when people trade one kind of certainty for another kind of certainty because I just don't think you've progressed. It's like if you go from having this absolute wooden, I know what the answers are and I know that I'm right, to another form of this wooden, it's, um, it's the same epistemology, can I say it that way? It's the same, it's the same, kind, of, it's the same kind of knowing. Uh, it's the same, uh, it's like, is it really even a different religion? Uh, you know, you had insiders and outsiders over here. You got insiders and outsiders over there. Over there. You have um, uh, doctrinal purity codes over here. You have ideological purity codes over here. Oh, uh, Devin, that's so good. Enter into the mystery the way it was supposed to be all along. You know, I, I so believe that, entering the, in, in the mystery. But yeah, it's like you have ideological purity codes over here. And if you um, don't agree with us about one thing, then you're out. Um, people change their minds about some things and enter a whole other world where if you disagree with one, I'm going to use a King James phrase here, one jot or tittle of their doctrine, you are negated as a human being. Is it all right if I get, I, I'm, I'm just leaning all the way in right now. Uh, George said it's like trading fundamentalist views for different fundamentalist views instead of deconstructing fundamentalism. Oh, that's so true. Um, I've, I don't know if I've said this publicly, but if I haven't, let this be the moment. I've been thinking a lot about how one of the things that sent me on a certain kind of journey when I was younger is being in a culture where everybody was life, 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 life. And having this, wait a second, grace, 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 everybody needs another chance. N uh, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, or God's love or whatever. And they're like, what? And I couldn't make sense of that in the death penalty. Well, um, now I'm at a place in my life, uh, if I can just be a little preachy with y'all, where I don't understand the notion of, okay, so you can be against the death penalty, but think that people, that somebody who's not in prison might say or do something that so negates their humanity to where now you think that there's no possibility for pardon. Now they're, now they're like fully negated, you know, so they like champion, you know, we don't want people to be, we don't want people to be executed by the state, but we think that uh, other people, maybe even that we know uh, we can, can uh, might've said or done so, whatever, like 20 years, ago, like so rotten that there would never be a, an opportunity for growth or grace or improvement. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, this really doesn't sound like a different religion to me. This doesn't really sound like, a, I, I've already been here. <laughs> I've already done that. And part of why I, I got uncomfortable with those spaces was this idea that I just can't fathom that any human is beyond redemption, is beyond progress, is beyond growth and change or development in some way. Anyway, I'm getting real ranty. So. I just think that the craving that we have for certainty is ultimately an unhealthy thing, which is why God does not give it to us. We want certainty, we need certainty, so we think, God doesn't give it to us. And I just wonder if in some ways that could be a liberating word for some of us where if, to stop looking for it, you know, to stop looking for certainty to stop looking for God to operate in such a way that God is going to overwhelm our senses.
And um, hey, you get you do you actually get a choice to believe or to not believe. But the way of God is not coercion. The way of God is not gun to the head. Uh, it's I'm not trying to get into too many things. One of the reasons why I believe and talk about some of the things I do about eternal conscious torment, because I just think you know, love's not possible. If you, if you put a gun to somebody's head and you say, love me or else, then no matter how they respond, it's not love. Sorry, it's not. You can't, you cannot love looking down the barrel of the gun. It's just not possible. Y yes, yes, I will love you forever. I will serve you always. I, you know, I, I, when even Paul's phrase, which I like, by the way, the notion of, you know, Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I can't think that that means that this, it's at the edge of the sword, like Caesar's sword, like people are so, <laughs> uh, like, like are, 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 I can't think that even that is about coercion. I just don't think that's the idea. It's not who God is no i'm preaching from the gospels on this orthodox easter sunday and what are the gospels if not the revelation for us of who god is and what god is like this is not who god is god's way is not to overwhelm people into belief against their consent against their capacity man y'all are preaching so good in the comments Devin said Amb ambiguity is a grace gift i love that April said liberation that feels, it feels like free falling a lot of the time. And you know what? I experienced it that way. It does feel like free falling a lot, but you know, um, I said I was done 10 minutes ago. I, why is it when I, even I'm talking about these things, I still sound like a Southern Baptist preacher trying to close eight times, <laughs> but this is feeling good in here this morning. Y'all, I just hope that you can really receive some grace in this, this morning. Yeah, it does feel like free falling. So like, like let yourself fall. I really think a lot of us are tormented in ways that we wouldn't have to be tormented because we feel like still that lack of certainty means there's something wrong with us. And while I'm not trying to coerce you into anything, the fact that God doesn't grant us those kind of experiences doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with God either. I think this is not the way that faith works. So if we can just kind of remove the need for certainty altogether and follow the breadcrumbs where they lead for us without this need for everybody. Um, ah, I love this. He so believed in lack of control that he made all the options available. I really do, really do believe that. God gives us options. God always gives us options. It's one of the things that makes God God. Can I say it that way? I mean, I, I'm not, this is not some, I say things like this a lot now, don't I? It sounds defensive, but I just think it. I, you know, I'm not rolling up in here from a beach as a new agey hippie teacher, like who's just been out in the sun too long, and it's just this is something like free love and like whatever. Maybe that'd be fine. It's just it's just not what I'm doing. This is just this is what we get. I, I think almost anybody would agree that probably the the peak story for Jesus of what of the depiction of God as father, as God as parent, would be the story of the prodigal son. And what is the story of the prodigal son? The kid comes to his dad. He wants his inheritance early. The father knows for certain that it's going to be misspent. And, of course, he gives him the inheritance early, absolutely knowing where that's going to land. I mean, you know, this is 
this is what God does. God gives us permission. And I've been saying for a long time now, I think that's how we know and recognize healthy elders in our lives. And I do think we need elders in our lives. We really do. That's part of where I think a lot of us struggle is that we don't have elders on the path that we're on. And that's hard because we need that kind of affirmation, validation and blessing. And, you know, obviously this is not send me a seed offering in the mail and I will be your, your spiritual dad. It's nothing like that. Um, but we do need those voices, don't we? And I think a lot of us lack it and hurts and that, just, and that sucks. And I'm sorry, but we do need those kind of elders. And I think one of the ways we recognize we have them is the elders always give us permission. Elders never try to tell us what to do. A wise elder is always going to give us space, is going to give us room, is going to give us permission, is uh, to, to go on a journey. Uh, I, I, I know that we want somebody to just tell us what to do. Again, not impugning anybody's motives. But when somebody's just trying to tell you what to do, I will put it like this. Even if they mean well, I can tell you that's a person who will not help you grow at minimum. <laughs> it, it can get, get into some really nasty manipulation and control and um, break your mind. <laughs> but at minimum, I will tell you <laughs> that it's not going to lead to any sort of growth or development in any kind of a human way. The way we grow and the way that we uh, grow in love, the way that we grow in life is that people give us permission and they give us space. And that includes permission and space to make mistakes. And if they're trying to control our decisions, they're trying to control our behaviors. I think that's a pretty good indication. Ah, that's just not, that's not what God sounds like. That's not what the voice of God does. All right. I'm done. I want to pray for you. Uh, Zach's going to jump on in just a second and lead us in the liturgy. I realize I've been talking for a very long time. Uh, these things apparently get pent up. Thanks for bearing with me, y'all. Uh, would like to save these comments forever because y'all have been doing some really, really good preaching in the comments. Um, but yeah, let's pray. And I just want to give you this simple little invitation as we pray. And I'm trying to just be present in this moment. That's why I'm trying to be uh, thoughtful. Oh, Deanna. Deanna's actually wasted liturgy. I'm sorry to hear Zach say. So I want to just give a little bit of space in this prayer specifically for this. What would it look like for you to have a moment where consciously you were to actually give up to yield, to surrender the need for certainty, to give up the desire for certainty. And I'm saying that knowing that it cuts against me because I'm, I still find myself really driven by a need for certainty. But it's why I think moments of prayer like this can be so, such an important practice, is that we do need these moments of surrender what would it look like to just give up on that altogether? All right, okay. To recognize that on some level, most of the time, we're still, we still want the ground to be a little bit more uh, solid. <laughs> I love that the way Don just said I could have saved my therapist copay this week. <laughs> that makes me really happy. <laughs> but just to, like, just to let go of that altogether and just, just hands off the steering wheel and just be where you are. And uh, to invite God into that, if you so choose, to invite 
the reality of Jesus into that if you so choose, but understand that you do in fact have a choice. Uh, I think one of the reasons that I do love Jesus personally, that's my testimony. And the way that I do now is precisely because I feel like Jesus has given me room and given me space. And um, it's, it's right. It's how you love in any relationship. Uh, anybody who is familiar with a toxic relationship knows that it typically does not go well when somebody has a you'll love me or else kind of attitude. It's impossible to love that person, really, right? So, um, yeah, let's pray. Well, God, um, we just come to you. And I will, and I would, Lord Jesus, we come to you. And we come to you this Orthodox Easter Sunday as uh, the one who is risen. And we come to you as the one who is tender to us and our doubts and our questions and our fears. And I just ask for grace this morning to help us to let go of our need for certainty, uh, to help us to let go of our expectation that we need to know more than we need to know, or we need to know differently than we need to know. I just pray that you would grant us the grace to take our hands off this morning, loosen our grip, and allow ourselves to be. And I pray that as we are just simply here, created and loved, uh, that that will be the, the only thing that we need to know. We are here. We are in this moment. We are some weird way through the internet together. I pray that that would just kind of be enough for us. And then instead of seeking and striving for answers, that you would allow us to just to lie back. Uh, to, just to speak to y'all for a second, I just want to encourage you in the same way, like if you're on the ocean, you ever do the thing where you close your eyes and you kind of uh, just lay kind of like a plank just flat, just to just to take a deep breath and allow yourself just to lie back and not to feel like there, you know, there's no, there's no dog paddling. <laughs> there's no, um, no swimming laps here. Just simply allow yourself to be held, be where you are. Know that you are enough. God is enough. God's love is enough.